So Michael is over at my church at Terrace Heights Baptist Church, and I feel like I'm right at home because I know uh, so many of you. Um, in fact, I see the Johnson girls the most because they're, uh, we see each other for youth group every Wednesday. Well, I see Courtney the most because I see her every day. Well, every, like three days a week. So, um, so it is good to be here. I feel like I'm at home, and I thank you all for welcoming me so much and giving me this opportunity. Um, and also, before we get too far, I do want to pray for, for Michael and for my church family as well, that, uh, that God give him the words to say and give him wisdom too, because um, uh, each of us has different church families, and so the things that he is called to say to you are different than the things that he's going to be called to say to my church family and, and vice versa. So let's pray for Michael real quick. Uh, Father, we lift up uh, Michael to you. Uh, we praise you that you are the God of wisdom, the source of wisdom, that we can trust you and believe in you, that you will provide in supernatural ways and in abundance. And so we just ask exactly that, that you would provide that for Michael, uh, provide that for myself as well as uh, we have the blessing, the opportunity to open your word and to... Um, um, to, to preach as you've called us to. Um, just help us to be faithful and obedient. Pray for pastors all over the world uh, as we just were that, uh, would, uh, that as they're gathering uh, right now or maybe did already or will later on today uh, that, uh, that you would just use their words, help them to speak truth and help them to um, honor you and what they say and do. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, um, you guys have been going through the book of Acts, and we have too. In fact, uh, what kind of brought this about for our church is there's a TV series that's been going on on NBC, and so we like to study the Bible by watching TV. No, that's actually a joke. Um, uh, though I think that the producers have really tried to, to do their uh, best to try and uh, uh, stay accurate historically and biblically. There's you just, you shouldn't uh, base your biblical beliefs on what NBC thinks, but it's a great opportunity to talk to people about the Bible. And so what we've done is we've encouraged our church to say, hey, watch the show, talk with your friends, and uh, say, hey, did you watch um, the AD show last night? What did you think about it? Well, hey, uh, you know, I was reading this part in my Bible, and you can start to have biblical conversations with people that maybe are not as comfortable talking about the Bible initially because they're watching a TV show. Um, and so, hey, if uh, I, I've told my church from the beginning, too, if um, NBC wants to promote our church services, I will let them. So, uh, so we've uh, been doing that. And uh, so we started into this uh, series on Acts with the idea of trying to talk about something that, um, that, that is going on in our culture and being aware of that while also trying to look at things from a biblical perspective and uh, start to look at what the church is like uh, and what we should be, what things we can learn from the early church, what things that we need to follow in their example. And so we've started asking that question, and I, I know that you guys have been doing that too and moving through a series Michael's been calling Witness. And um, so I, I want to do a quick review just to remind you, because um, if you're like most folks in church, um, your life is crazy. And so maybe you haven't been here every Sunday 
for the last four to six weeks or whatever. Um, but uh, following the storyline is really important. Acts is a book written by um, Luke, who was a physician that went uh, around and uh, basically did an investigative reporting type of a job to find out all of the details about first the life of Christ, and so he wrote the Gospel of Luke, um, and then he wrote the the Acts according to the Apostles, um, which was uh, or the Acts of the Apostles, which um, was his follow-up book. And um, so we should follow the storyline as we're going through this. So we start in um, in the beginning of Acts. Jesus ascends to heaven, and he says, "You will be my what." Witnesses, absolutely. You will be my witnesses. And uh, he calls um, people to, um, to, to do that. He doesn't say you might be if you do all of the right things. You might be if, um, if uh, you say the right words or if you intentionally go about this, you might be my witnesses. One of the phrases we shared at my church was that um, there is a, a famous Olympic runner named Eric Little who... Um, he uh, had said this phrase, and I'm going to misquote it. I forgot to write it down today, but it goes something to the effect of this, that we are all witnesses, and we either, by our lives, either draw people closer to Christ or we push them further away from Christ, that we are all witnesses no matter what. Um, if we are Christ followers, we're all witnesses. And so um, one of the things I've shared with my church is I have to ask this question, do I really believe what I believe? Because if I really believe what I believe, then that changes everything. That, that, the way that I witness is going to be different, right? If I really believe what I believe, then how I approach my life is going to be totally different, right? Um, the, the big reason that I think that you can say, uh, Eric Little can say, you're going to be witnesses and you're either going to drive people further away from Christ or you're going to bring them to Christ. So I want you to think about this is I can witness to someone and draw them closer to Christ by the power of Christ. But if I say that I believe in Jesus and I say that I believe that he died for my sins, if I say that I believe that he rose from the grave, if I say that I believe that he is the only hope for salvation, which uh, we're going to talk about today, um, if I say that I believe all of those things, but then I don't say anything about that to the people that I love most, or I... Um, am uncomfortable or embarrassed to talk about Jesus, um, that communicates a message, right? Our lack of talking about Jesus also communicates a message. Like that bears witness to how much do we really believe what we believe. Does that make sense? Uh, so I think we have to, to realize that in all things God has called us to be witnesses if we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus. And that's a hard road. But everything that we say and do bears witness to whether Jesus is the Lord of our life or as someone that we're kind of interested in, but that we're afraid to talk about in certain circles. And I want you to know that I'm not speaking this out of some kind of judgmental condemnation or anything like that, but simply saying, this is something that I struggle with on a daily basis. Uh, when do I talk to my friend about this? Did I use the right timing? I hope I said the right words. I hope I didn't confuse something. Uh, I don't know if he's ready to talk about this issue. You know, I, I think that we 
all struggle with the, that in various ways. And so you go through uh, Acts 1 about being a witness. They uh, meet in the upper room. They wait for the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, fills them with power. There's 120 people that go out and start sharing their faith. And the miracle is not just that the Holy Spirit comes down and allows all these people to speak in different languages, but that God, for thousands upon thousands of years, has been gathering Jewish people from all over the world to meet and worship in the temple area on the day of Pentecost. All right? So they have this Jewish tradition that says, hey, you're supposed to go up to Jerusalem and gather up here. And so God had allowed uh, the Jewish people to be scattered all over the world, to be judged for their sins against him. And so you have Jews in Africa, you have Jews in, um, in Europe, you've got Jews in all through Asia, in India, all over the place that come and travel to Jerusalem to worship God on Pentecost. And so you have people all over the world that gather up to hear Peter's sermon spoken in all of their languages. Isn't that an amazing miracle? Not only that God has a plan for the moment, but that God has a plan that he's been working on for thousands upon thousands of years. And so he draws people in. The word goes out. 3,000 people become Christians and are baptized and amazing things start to happen. And so uh, then... Uh, a couple weeks ago, you would have learned about how they shared things, had things in common. We see the practices of the early church, the way that they acted uh, towards each other, and how God was moving in their midst and allowing that environment. Uh, in, in that environment, it says, uh, the v very end of chapter 2, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. In chapter 3, it gets a little bit more exciting. I mean, this is, this is a great story. We're building in anticipation. Chapter 3, you've got Peter and John going up to the temple, going to worship God, um, going to spend this time at this prayer service that happens at the temple. And on the way, they heal this guy, and he gets so excited about his healing. Now, you have to understand, it's in the middle of the afternoon. They're having this prayer service. It's, uh, I mean, Jewish, definitely, but uh, you can imagine that it's going to be similar to a typical Middle Eastern type of approach to prayer. So they're probably bowing down. It's probably, um, it may be individual or maybe recited things, whatever it is, but uh, it's definitely not going to be like uh, everybody's running around and talking to each other and high-fiving, doing all these kinds of stuff. So very solemn moment. These guys are praying. This crippled guy busts into the area that they're praying and is running around and jumping and clapping and doing all this kind of stuff. The guy that they threw money at right before they walked into their prayer service is running around. And it's kind of disturbing. So everybody runs out of the temple and says, what is going on? And Peter gets a se uh, second opportunity to preach a message. Um, and so, if you'd pick up with me in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 1. Uh, the words are going to come up on the screen at about verse 5, because Michael did go into verse 4 with you last week. But in, in verse 5 is where we're gonna, uh, uh, the, they're going to pick up on the screen. But we'll start in verse 1 of Acts chapter 4. You can follow along with me. Um, I want to save this one thing before we jump in though, is uh, how many of you have or do read to your kids at, uh, at night? Uh, parents, uh, how many of you have or did read to your kids before they go to bed or something like that? Now, how many of you as a child, because some of you aren't parents or some of you uh, have grown kids or whatever it is, how many uh, have uh, you um, been read to 
by your parents at some point. Now, how many of you have been read to by a teacher in school or something like that? Okay, so you know that when you read the story, there are times where you're really exciting, you're really engaging, people really want to hear what you have to say, or uh, the, the kids want to listen, and you can read it with all the fun voices and all the different things, and it's really exciting. And then there's some nights that the kid picks up the longest book in the pile, and you're like... No, not tonight. I just want to go to bed. Please don't make me read this one. Um, or uh, if uh, I think I've got friends that do substitute teaching and you go into the classroom and uh, there's uh, the book on the list that you're supposed to read to all these kids and it's like, not this one. This one's so... Uh, so anyways, um, sometimes I think that we approach the Word of God like it's that book late at night when all you want to do after a long day at work is go to bed. And so we say, <sighs> And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, oh man, this takes forever. So um, I, I get concerned when we read the Word of God that we don't... Uh, now, I'm not saying, hey, everybody uh, has to read it like it's some kind of play production or something like that. But I think that we need to be reminded that if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, that if we have believed that everything that He says is true, then this, these words are true, this really did happen, and this is life for us. This is one of the most significant things we can do in our entire week is to read his word and to say, what does this mean? This can change us today. Like, the, I mean, that's, that's really incredible. Like, if we really believe what we believe, like we were saying earlier, that as we read this, the word of God can change us in this moment. Like, that, that's amazing to me. And so... I think, number one, we have to realize that this is amazing and powerful and fascinating and interesting and true. It's a true story. Like, this, this really happened. And so this, this isn't some uh, story that we're going to share with you so that you learn some good morals and that you feel good having felt like you got your money's worth when you go home. Okay? So that's not the purpose of the book of Acts. The pur uh, purpose of the book of Acts is not Grimm's fairy tales. All right? This is real. And so what I want you to do, uh, a pastor that I enjoy listening to, his name's Matt Chandler, um, says this uh, from time to time in his messages. He says, I want you to listen or to read with your imagination. And what I'm not saying is that you should imagine something that's not there. Okay? So don't make up stuff that's not in the Bible. But what you should do is read and imagine what it would have been like if you were there watching these events unfold. I think that we have to understand this is a real moment. These are real people. Real things happen in this life. There is a real guy that sat at a temple gate for 40 years having money thrown at them so that they wouldn't have to do anything real in the guy's life. A real guy that suffered for 40 years and a real guy that in one moment had his hand grabbed and stood up because of an awkward conversation with Peter. Those things really happened. And how do, you, how do you imagine what it would have been like to be in those moments? So I want you to put yourself in those moments. I want you to think about that. So what's just happened is Peter has healed this man. Okay, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, Peter has had the opportunity to, by the power of God, to heal this man. 
And uh, just to quote a verse real quick, in Acts chapter 3, verse 9, it says, All the people saw him walking, praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate at the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Think about, what would you be doing if you saw somebody that you know has been sitting in a wheelchair for their entire lives? And you see them get up and running around and disrupting a prayer service because they're so overjoyed by the work that God has done in their lives. Imagine being there in that moment. It's important. Okay, So you would be with the crowd running out to Peter to say, what in the world is going on? This is incredible. I want to know more. And so chapter 3, verse 11, he goes on and preaches a message And then we pick up in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be uh, be about 5,000. Verse 5, On the next day their rulers and elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the middle, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which had become the, uh, uh, you the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing this man was healed standing beside them, They had nothing to say in opposition. They had commanded them to leave the council. They conferred with one another, excuse me, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for everyone was praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And Father, we just thank you so much for your word that challenges us, uh, the word that helps us to grow, the word that makes us new. And we just ask that as we, um, as we study it, as we um, 
ask ourselves uh, what you're teaching us today. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would speak to us and that you would change us, that you would uh, mold us more into the image of Jesus. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, just a couple observations about this story that I want to point out to you um, so that we can have a better picture, a better imagination when we're thinking about this story. Is first off, uh, you have different characters, all right? We have this lame man, and I want you to note that the lame man is so excited about having been healed that he's actually, he goes to Peter and John's trial, okay? So it does say that he's standing there with them uh, during this trial. Um, and then uh, you have... The uh, Sadducees, you have the captain of the temple guard, the priests, all these people um, that make up what's called the Sanhedrin. And that's a Jewish ruling body. It was 71 men, um, primarily composed of one uh, people group. And to understand fully what's going on, you have to know the different types of people that, um, types of people groups uh, in this New Testament time. So you had uh, Pharisees, that was one uh, type of group that you've read about. You had Essenes, there was another type. And then there was uh, Sadducees. And all of these were religious uh, leaders in and amongst the people that had various different uh, views on, on Scripture and the way that it was supposed to be applied to their lives. Um, and so uh, the main two people are two groups in the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and Pharisees. Um, so the Pharisees, uh, you saw a lot in the ministry of Jesus. They were traveling rabbis for the most part that went around and taught how to obey God, how to follow the law, and they actually developed a whole lot of extra texts and rules and um, rituals and uh, customs, all that kind of stuff, to basically make sure that they would better obey God's law. So I want you to think about some of the things that maybe uh, you made as rules in your home or, uh, you know, children, uh, things that are rules uh, in your life but that are really supposed to keep you from breaking the even bigger rule. So, um, for me, uh, one of the rules growing up when I was a teenager was you have to be home by 10. Now, the purpose of you have to be home by 10 was to keep me from breaking other bi bigger rules uh, and getting into really big trouble or uh, getting into trouble with uh, Amy, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, and now is my wife. Uh, so, um, we uh, had rules, but it was about not breaking those. So, the Pharisees were that, that kind of people. Let's make a whole bunch of rules to keep us from breaking the rules. Okay? And they would go around and teach people. Now, they were pretty popular with the people, though, because they were kind of like the, the, the common traveling rabbi. Okay? Um, now, the Sadducees were of a different group. They really only believed, for the most part, most of them only believed in the first five books of what we now have as the Bible. They'd call it the, the Torah or the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books. Um, and so they really didn't ascribe to much else. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead which is a problem because Jesus is alive, right? I mean, that's uh, a problem for them and, uh, you know, creates conflicts between them and us because Jesus is very much alive and so they didn't know what to do with that. And so when you read verses like greatly annoyed um, in verse 2 of chapter 4, I want you to understand why they were greatly annoyed at all of this. Um, so the Sadducees were um, more of a ruling group, okay? So they ascribed to first five books of the Bible, but even that, 
they weren't really good at obeying the rules, okay? The big thing was that they were in bed with the Roman government. So you have to know your history to a certain extent that the Maccabees were in charge at a certain point after the destruction of this Jewish temple. All kinds of crazy things happened. And then all of a sudden, Rome comes in, takes over the land. But they did what Romans do best in saying, okay, we won't kill you all. We'll just put some people in charge that we trust. And so what they would do is they would say, okay, you can still be Jews. We won't kill you and take away your religion and all that kind of stuff. But... We get to choose who's the high priest, all right? And so the Sadducees would try and work it out with the Roman government. They were not necessarily popular with the people. They were not necessarily um, called or qualified to be high priests, but they were in with the Roman government so that they could have the authority to rule and lead the people. So this group of 70 men, this ruling, or 71 men, was made up of one high priest and 70 other guys, and most of them were Sadducees, which means they were rich, they were liked by Romans, and they typically weren't liked by a lot of the other people. But they put a few Pharisees on the council too to make sure the people were happy with the council. Um, and so that's kind of who they're going to face. All right. So why were they greatly annoyed? Because anytime anyone messes with Roman rule, people die, okay? And other people lose power. And so the Sadducees face losing money, losing authority, and things changing. If the words that Peter and John were saying were true. So, so they're not annoyed by the guy getting healed. Maybe he interrupted their prayer service and they're a little bit upset about that. Okay? Um, but they're not annoyed by that. They're annoyed by the words they are saying. Um, so one of the things that I, I've observed is, uh, you know, a lot of times in churches we'll see people that say um, things like, um, i got to say this right. I, I think it's kind of misquoted from St. Francis of Assisi, but uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, preach the gospel and when necessary use words. You may have heard that, that quote or that phrase uh, in, in churches before. But um, uh, what uh, I, a lot of, I think, good Bible teachers would say is it's always necessary to use words to preach the gospel. It's always necessary. So you can't just... Um, like, pick one of your particular rules, like a Pharisee, that you would say, um, you know, I'm going to just be a really nice person, and, you know, my friend is going to come to Christ because they notice that I don't swear. Um, that's just not the way it works in life. You've got to use words to tell people what you believe. Because uh, if I was, uh, you know, uh, think and put myself in the, the shoes of my unbelieving friends, uh, if, if I was in that boat... You know, and I, that's kind of the way that I lived my life through a lot of uh, middle school and high school was I, I just got to be a good guy in front of my friends, but what do I do with when I mess up? Um, and so uh, if I think about where my friends were at, it's like they've never told us about Jesus. It was just like, I mean, he was a nice guy, but so were all of our Mormon friends. So were all of... Uh, um, you know, all of these guys that, that were just really genuine nice guys but that don't love Jesus. Um, I mean, that, that wasn't saving or anything. That wasn't life-changing that he didn't swear. I mean, good for him, I guess. Um, so, uh, 
so the big thing is that it's necessary to use words. If you do a word study through the book or the chapter of Acts 4, you'll see over and over uh, in the ESV at least that uh, the 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 Sanhedrin, thank you, uh, is over and over saying we don't want them teaching, we don't want them proclaiming, we don't want them speaking. All of those kinds of words. Anything that has to do with using your mouth to tell people about Jesus. We don't want that to happen. If they want to heal a few people, whatever. We just don't want them talking about Jesus. Okay? Um, so they're greatly annoyed because they're losing power and authority. Um, and you have these characters like Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. This is all high priestly family that comes in. Annas is this guy that's been in bed with the Romans for a long time. In fact, so much so that he ends up having five sons, a son-in-law and a grandson that end up being the high priest. So, I mean, we would call that nepotism today. But today, that was called uh, good relationships with Roman government. And so, uh, he kept that going and made sure... So, it, it calls him the high priest in verse 6, but he wasn't really the high priest. It was actually Caiaphas, his son-in-law, at the time that was the high priest. Um, and so, these guys have been struggling to hang on to power. Now, how many of you are oldest siblings uh, in your family? You're the oldest. Okay, so there's only a handful of you that may identify with this, and then your family may have been more like mine too, where you were the oldest, but you were not the most responsible. Um, so uh, you may have been more like that too. But uh, in a lot of times, um, when you are the oldest sibling, um, there's the day that comes when you're old enough that your parents say, you know what, we're going to go out and do something together and I think the kids are old enough to stay by themselves. And they look at the oldest person and they say, you're in charge, right? Um, and so uh, they look at the oldest person in the family, you're in charge, you've got to make sure this all goes well, all right? Now here's what happens for the oldest kids, especially if they're good oldest children, right? Um, it was actually probably more likely for my sister, the middle child, to be more like this in my family because I just wasn't as responsible as she was. But, um, so the oldest child gets put in charge, and then so what do they do? We have to obey all of the rules that mom and dad said, and all of you are going to get us in trouble if you don't obey the rules. And so none of the other kids like them, because they're mean, because they want to stay in charge and control the situation. And, uh, but then they know that if mom and dad come, uh, come home and everything is messed up, then who's going to get in trouble is the oldest kid. And so, why didn't you make sure that this happened or did this? Okay, and so, um, so this is what's going on really with the Sanhedrin, with, uh, with the Sadducees, uh, with um, these uh, high priests and everything, is they're like, okay, the Roman government is going to come in and they're going to mess up everything that we've done. So I don't care if everybody hates us. I don't care if we have to kill a few disciples. We just got to make sure that we stay in control, that we stay in power, that everyone does what we say, because then everything's going to fall apart and we're going to get in trouble. Okay? Do you guys get where they're coming from? So here's the thing is what I told my church last week is that I think that what we need to do when we read the Bible, especially when we read narrative, is say, uh, you know, who do I identify with? What, what struggles are they facing? What, uh, what kinds of things do I see them doing? And is that kind of like what I do and what I struggle with and what I'm like? But here's what we do is we say, I'm the hero of my story because I'm awesome. And so when I play the movie of my life, I'm the main character. 
whenever somebody's against me, they're the evil ones. Whenever somebody's on my side, they're uh, my allies. So sometimes God is my ally, and sometimes God is my enemy. And so we, and that's the kind of the extreme that when you follow that line of logic. But most of the time, most of us would say, I'm the hero of my story. And so who are we going to identify ourselves with? We're going to sit here and be like, oh yeah, you're reading through the Gospel of Luke? I totally identify with Jesus. I am so much like that. That makes so much sense in my life that I would behave like that. Um, or we, uh, we read along and we come to Peter and John. They're healing this guy. Man, I would have so much compassion for that lame beggar. I wouldn't throw my money and walk on by so I'm not late for prayer service. Man, uh, you know, I would be totally the person that would reach down, have enough faith to believe that God is going to empower me in this moment to heal him and grab his hand and say, look at me and make it real awkward and comfortable before I pick him up and make him walk around. Um, so, uh, yeah, I totally have that much faith. I'm awesome like that. Um, and so we, we have this thought process that I identify with the hero. What I challenge you with today is that I think that we're not. I think that we really fall more in the category of I'm kind of more like a high priest. I'm kind of more like Caiaphas or Annas or some of those guys that are getting really frustrated because they're losing, losing power or control. Things are falling apart around them. Things aren't making sense. And things are starting to change. And this could be bad for us. And so we start to struggle with, uh, can I really follow Jesus if I could lose a lot of money doing this? Can I really follow Jesus if I could lose a lot of connections and relationships, let's say in my business or whatever it is. Can I really follow Jesus if, um, if it's going to cost me my high standing and political authority or something like that? I think that we're going to find ourselves identifying with these guys. Now it goes on, um, and uh, I, I don't want to leave you with the high priest. What I want you to see is that there's kind of two different things. There's one reaction to the message of Jesus, and that's these high priests, that's these Sanhedrin guys. They're like, shut it down, don't let them talk, don't tell anything, because mom and dad Rome are coming back sometime, and we're going to get in trouble, okay? Um, we're going to lose all our money. We're going to lose all our power. We're going to maybe lose our lives. Um, but then what you see is the reaction to Jesus and to his life change on Peter is very, very different. Um, so um, it's, uh, you look, uh, and so first they delay the trial until the next day so they can round everyone up and they bring Peter and John out. And it says eight, in verse 8 of chapter 4, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And then he goes on and basically preaches his third sermon to the people that hate him most. I mean, that's pretty incredible, right? That's, that's boldness. The, uh, so here's what typically happens, is a dude gets dragged in from the jail. He is dressed in all black. He is kneeling on the ground, maybe has some ashes dumped on his head and his shirt torn a little bit, and says... I repent before the Sanhedrin. Please don't kill me. Uh, they're, you know, bowing down. They're uh, basically trying to uh, 
worship and appease the Sanhedrin. Uh, They offer a defense for why they were doing what they were doing. And so what we don't see with Peter, he's not dressed in all black. He's not covered in ashes. He's not walking out. He's probably walking out with a couple fat lips, maybe a couple uh, uh, slashes in his back from the night in jail. And he walks out and says, uh, does not say, hey, let me defend myself. He says, I was doing everything that you thought I was doing, and here's why. There is no other name among, uh, uh, under heaven among men by which you must be saved. Jesus is why I've been doing this. Jesus, 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 Jesus. You know, let me see how many times I can say it so that you're even more greaterly annoyed. <laughs> with everything that's being said. Um, and so he says, there is n- salvation in no one else, in verse 12. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the only way. This is the only way you're going to be saved. And he tells that to the Sadducees. He says, Jesus, who you killed, but then, here, wait for it, God raised him from the dead. Are you annoyed yet? Because you guys don't believe in the resurrection. So I hope you're not mad at me yet. Um, I'm on trial and you have the power to kill me. But here we go. Um, And so he is bold. He is filled with power. He is not controlled by fear. He confronts them. He says, uh, you are the builders. uh, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. And the builders was a terminology for uh, community leaders. And we even talk about that. Like the builders of our community. And so he was saying... You Pharisees, you Sadducees, you Sanhedrin, you builders rejected Jesus. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. Annoyed. Uh, But then this man is standing before you well. And he attributes all of the power, all of the glory to God. uh, And specifically in Jesus Christ. And so the reaction is in verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They perceived they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. So here's what happens usually in trial is that you have um, guys that don't know what they're talking about that come in, get dragged in, get accused for something. The Sanhedrin, brilliant legal minds, biblical minds, all this kind of stuff says, you did this, this, and this according to this verse and this passage and all da 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 Let me show you how smart I am, how powerful I am, and how rich I am. I am over you. Be afraid of me. And here's what Peter does is the Sanhedrin is cowering in fear of what he says. And he walks in with all power and authority as a fisherman from Galilee. All right? So um, I don't know if you've ever met any fishermen. But um, typically guys in Congress aren't afraid of the power and authority and brilliance of fishermen. All right? That's, that's, that's not the way it works in our culture even still today. Um, and so they have turned the tables. Jesus is the only way. And uh, this really uh, mirrors what Jesus had prophesied in Luke chapter 21. Uh, Jesus says this, um, Starting in verse 10, he says to them, nation will rise against nation. Uh, Jesus is saying this to the disciples. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you. Did this happen? Yes, in this story, 
the Sanhedrin captures Peter and John. They will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. Yes, happening. Delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. Yes, happening. And you will be brought before the kings and governors for my name's sake. This is happening. Verse 13, there will be, uh, your, or this will be your opportunity to witness. Now, how many of you have maybe gone to school or done something or um, uh, to, to have opportunity in your life? How many of you are going to school right now because your parents want you to grow up, move out of their house, and get a job and have opportunity in life? Okay? Right? Yes. Uh, so, um, we do a lot of things for the prospect of opportunity, but most of the time we don't do things that really ruin our lives because God calls that opportunity, right? That, that's just not the way that we think. But these guys see what Jesus said. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. So verse 14, he says, Jesus says to them, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate before how to answer. So in other words, don't Okay, get your uh, defense for your trial prepared and don't do all of these things. Don't try and do that for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Is this happening? Absolutely. So you have two fishermen from Galilee that walk in with what we could maybe even describe if it was in America as a heavy southern drawl and just sound like they're probably not educated. And that's what the, Ferris, or the, the Sanhedrin's assumption is about these guys is, yep, these guys are probably not educated. And they walk in and say, all right, boys, Jesus is the only way. You know, and the, the Sanhedrin are saying, okay, this obviously is, uh, these guys are not educated, but their jaws are still, they're still trying to roll them up off the floor uh, from what these guys have said to them with the power, the authority, the brilliance, the wisdom. In fact, later on in Peter's speech to the Sanhedrin, even quotes um, Greek philosophers as a part of tying in his message, not to say that they have biblical authority, but using cultural references to explain and exegete his sermon to the... Uh, so, I mean, they're delivering things with an incredible amount of passion, power, and brilliance for fishermen from Galilee with a kind of boldness that shuts up the wise fools. Alright? Um, I think we need to Pray for that as a church. Not in a kind of arrogance, like in a kind of pridefulness, like, God, give me some power so I can make people shut up. No, that, that's, that's terrible. But give me the wisdom to help people when I talk to them to, to silence those voices in their minds that say, I could never follow Christ. I can never obey. I can never do what you say. You, I, can, I, I just can't do that. Help me to have that kind of wisdom that helps them silence those voices. Um, and so, uh, so we see that happen. And, um, and then really what's disheartening is the reaction of the Sanhedrin is, all right, we don't know what to do. We don't want to lose um, popularity with the people. So we can't really punish these guys. So we'll just say, no, 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 no. And then we're going to send them out. That's really all that we've got right now. That's all that we've got. And so what they do is they say exactly that and they send them out. 
And so, um, so Paul talks about this and says um, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, um, what has happened here? He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God pl it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now here's, here's important to understand what happened with the Sanhedrin. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Our culture is probably more in the category of wisdom, though there's many, even in the young millennial generation, that are more in the we seek a sign category. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And um, what happened with the Sanhedrin is they say, we want a sign. And God drops it from heaven in their laps in the form of a guy running around in their prayer meeting that hasn't walked for 40 years. And they say, nah, that's not enough. We still need our power. We don't want things to change. We would lose too much. The sign's not enough. So God in his mercy even gave the Sanhedrin a sign and they still rejected it. So I think we come to this point in the service where we have to say, okay, wh what, what do I do with all of this information? Great, we, we know the story now. And so we go right back to it. What, what person am I finding myself being identified with? What, what person am, am I struggling with? Am I going to be able to be bold like Peter and John? Am I going to be able to experience the power of God as he speaks through me and reaches people through me? Or am I going to be more in the boat of the Sanhedrin, these folks um, that have even received a sign from God and, and have rejected him? So let's pray together. Let's ask God to examine our hearts. Let's ask him to show us what we need to do. Um, and I encourage you to pray about these things. First of all, is if you have not believed in the, the person that uh, Peter says uh, that uh, there is salvation found in no one else, there's no other name by which you may be saved, uh, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, I encourage you to ask Jesus to save you, to forgive you of your sins, to make you new and free. Um, if you, uh, maybe you've uh, said, well, I don't think I'm in the boat of the Sanhedrin, but um, I really want to be more like Peter and John. I encourage you to just pray for, for boldness that, that you, just like Peter said, that you can't help but speak about Jesus and the salvation that he alone offers. Um, but I think that for a lot of us, we've got to stand before God um, in prayer, ask him to evaluate our hearts and say, um, God, am I motivated by power or, or control or or fear of change. Um, even in am I worried about this changing something about my family, or my job, my future? Or am I willing to say, I can't help but speak?
So Father, we just ask that you would discern our hearts, that you would help us to know where we're at when we stand before you. You'd help us to be bold like Peter and John. You'd also help us to repent if, if we're not there, if, if, if for fear of things changing or messing things up or worrying about what others think, we would rather keep things the same than obey you. Would you forgive us? Would you confront those sins in our lives? You help us, help us to be bold. Help us to run away from that person that we used to be, the person that we're trying to die to every day. Father, just change our, change our hearts, change our lives. Help us to follow you. Just thank you for your word and for time to be with you, be with your church. You help us to grow in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.